When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Taking Care of Lady Business, where we put the business back in lady business. Hosted by Jennifer Justice, founder and CEO of the Justice Department, a management strategy and law firm that works with female and woke male entrepreneurs, executives, talent, brands, and creatives to build and maximize their wealth, focusing in the areas of tech, consumer product, finance, media, entertainment, and fashion. Jennifer interviews entrepreneurial women who have done it all, who will be sharing their secrets on all things business, especially as a woman. These highly successful women will share strategies and insights, including what not to do and what it takes to win. And now, here's your host, Jennifer Justice. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Taking Care of Lady Business, where we're putting the business back in lady business. Today, we have on the show, Lauren Taylor-Wolf. She's a co-founder, managing partner at Impactive Capital. Hi, Lauren. Hi, how are you, Jennifer? I'm good. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on here. Um, Lauren has a very interesting job as an activist investor um, because I don't even really understand it. I'm going to be (laughs) learning a lot today. I'm going to have her tell us A, what that is and B, how she got into it. Sure. Um, So I've been an activist investor for just under 20 years now, which seems crazy when I say it. Um, So what is an activist investor? An activist investor, they used to call them corporate raiders, things like Carl Icahn um, of, you know, back in the 80s and 90s. And it has such a negative connotation. It had had a very negative connotation. Of course it did. Back in the 80s and 90s, they would take big stakes in companies and then do what's called green mail, force the company to sell itself or buy back stock from the activists. Um, And then it's really evolved over time. Our approach has been really collaborative and friendly, um, where it's almost like a private equity approach in the public markets. And what this means is we invest in all public companies, but we do so in a very concentrated manner. So um, we manage about $2 billion and we only have about eight to 12 investments at any point in time. And what we do is we take a large stake in a company where we own about five or 10% of the company. And then we engage with the management team and the board of directors. And sometimes we go on the boards of these public companies and we suggest capital allocation initiatives, as well as sort of impact-oriented social and environmental and governance-oriented initiatives that drive a better return, that accelerate the overall returns for shareholders, for customers, and for employees alike. And so, you know, our goal is to generate a very um, high return for our LPs, but then also um, help the company become even better than what it could have been. So that's sort of, you know, that's how activism has evolved. There are still, you still have some ho- what's called like sort of hostile activists, but our view is, you know, that really doesn't suit my personality necessarily. Right. I'd much rather try to influence with charm and, um, and sort of the substance of my ideas. And so, so that's what we do. And when you talk about uh, capital allocation, what do you mean by that? Sure. 
So capital allocation is really how a company puts its own money to work. So, you know, companies have what's called a balance sheet, right? They have a lot of cash that they generate from, you know, profits uh, and they can borrow money, right? So they can take out debt and then they, you know, put that money to use. They could invest in R&D to discover a new, you know, pharmaceutical. They can invest in innovative technology or, you know, they can make a big acquisition of another company to accelerate the growth of the business. Mm -hmm. And so capital allocation is really thinking about how, you know, the company has almost infinite possibilities of places that they can put their money to accelerate profitability. In our responsibility, when we think about engaging around capital allocation, we come to the table with interesting ideas around what is the best use of the capital, meaning what is going to generate the highest long-term return, not a quick sugar high, not a quick, you know, sell the company or buy back stocks sometimes for me. It's what is going to generate the greatest long-term rate of return for that company um, with capital today. So that's how we think about it. And then are all of these more like, you know, ESG, like people keep hearing this term when it comes to the the environmental, social and governmental, right? That's what those ESG stands for. So it's environment. So it's environmental, social and governance change. And when you think about it, first of all, there's a lot of BS around ESG, right? It's it's in the papers, you know, all the time. A lot of companies or investment managers feel that they have to be doing ESG. When I launched the business in 2018, we were the only people really doing this proactive ESG in a way that drove returns, and everyone thought that it was a fad, and you know, people doubted us. And then, sure enough in 2020 in the pandemic uh, with you know the Black Lives Matters um, movement and uh, a lot of the acceleration around the importance of uh, the environment uh, and Biden taking over and rejoining the Paris Agreement. So a number of these things caused ESG to be not necessarily a fad, but really a business imperative. And we can mm-hmm. go into each of these things. Uh, but th- at the highest level, when we think about impact, I almost think about it like um, like a flywheel. Let me back up and go ESG environmental. When you think about environmental change, right? Companies, when they pursue their business strategy and their, their business plans, whether you're a manufacturer to a technology company, you're going to have some impact on the environment. You can be running servers hot or, you know, you're going to be manufacturing widgets. You're going to have some impact on carbon emissions, on air quality, on water quality, on land use. And so understanding what that impact is is really important for a company to so that they can both disclose that you know disclose that and set goals around that for the purposes of reducing their impact uh, on the environment similarly with society like when we think about the social issues a lot of it is like for instance as an example labor intensive businesses it's how can you pursue profits in a way that lowers any negative impact uh, reduces the harm that you may inflict on society or that improves the way that you're celebrating diversity and inclusion. Um, and then from a governance perspective, this is really at the very top, the highest levels um, in a boardroom of, you know, how is the board being managed? Are there enough checks and balances to make sure that long-term decision-making is optimized? Is executive compensation linked to the right things, right? So we are very excited about linking executive compensation and bonus plans to some of these environmental and social initiatives, as well as the profit motive of the business. And so the environmental, social, and governance ideas are um, are really sort of, uh, this is more 
making sure that in a capitalist society where we are, we are not pursuing capitalism and profitability and shareholder return at the expense of all these other stakeholders. Right. Yes. Okay, good. You literally just nailed it. I was like, so basically you're trying to make the company better, but still have big returns. <laughs> yeah. We think about it like almost like a we think about it. It's so like there's this there's this notion of shareholder primacy versus stakeholder primacy. Right. And in like the Milton Friedman version of the world, which many people in our generation have been educated in, in both undergrad economics class and finance classes and business school, it was the sole purpose of a corporation is to generate profits for its shareholders. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what we've learned is that now, like first of all, very few people in our society can truly create wealth as becoming shareholders. That's changed more recently because of all these platforms and Twitter and, you know, and, and Robinhood and the public, which, you know, I much prefer to Robinhood. So big plug for the public, um, which is more community based. But the point is, as we go from shareholder primacy, which was the sole purpose of the corporation is to generate profits for its shareholders. When I think about stakeholder primacy, I think the purpose of the corporation is to generate profits, but it should able to be able to, it should be able to do that while also improving outcomes for employees, for customers, um, for suppliers, and so all these different stakeholders. So when we when we invest in a company and we have an interesting idea around um, an environmental, social, or governance change that drives a return, we think about like almost like a, a Venn diagram, but with three circles where employees, shareholders, and customers can all benefit, where those three circles would overlap. Right. Right. So, you know, somebody, I just had somebody on the podcast last week and she's had such a great point, which is we've never seen capitalism where women and and people of color are running the show. Right. So we see the bad things and the negative things about it. What if we all participated in that power of capitalism? What would that look like? You know, and so you're doing it from such a high level, like as female founders and me representing mostly just women, it's like, we're just trying to raise $25,000 for angel investing in startups. Like now you're doing it from this massive level and hopefully we'll all come together much faster than the 200 years it would take us for to make the same amount of money and, you know, forget about the wealth Totally. So I've worked in a male dominated industry where I'm usually uh, the only woman in the room. And oftentimes I was greeted and I was like, oh, you know, are you the marketer? And I'm like, no, no, I'm the investor. And so, you know, it's less than 2% of hedge fund assets, dollars of assets are allocated to women and the number is lower uh, for minorities. So there is huge imbalance, but I think finally the tides are changing and the more and more um, people see folks like you and me running businesses and you know running investment firms. I think we'll just um, drive. You have to you know you have to see it to actually follow it, right? There was a study done where an economics department hired half female professors and half male professors, and overnight the enlisted students in the economics uh, in one hundred and one doubled or tripled from like fifteen percent to thirty percent and continued to grow. I think, you know, part of, you know, I go and I speak to business school classes and I speak to a lot of young, uh, young women's organizations. And because I think we just have to show them that this is an opportunity for them. This is a role that this is a path they can follow. There are others like them. And frankly, for me, it'll help because like from my perspective, there were so few women, I think, hedge fund managers and activist investors. And they're still I'm one of two of them. But there's really very few female investment managers and, and activists because 
from a, you know, out people who give me money, right? The allocators, the large pension plans and endowments and foundations and high net worths that, you know, we, we now manage about $2 billion. We've raised a lot of that, but we've also performed and generated performance on, on what we've raised. But the people who allocate those, ca that capital, they're pattern seeking animals, right? They're so used to seeing a white male, um, come in and ask for, you know, raise money and, you know, and then go out and invest the capital. And so they're, their recognition of success had always been in that format. And it's, I wow. think there's this like unconscious bias of like not having the experience of seeing women in this role being successful. And so I think the more younger women see that, the more they're going to follow that. And we see that with like Sarah Blakely of, you know, Spanx and, and, and even Reese Witherspoon with, you know, her sale wow. and the Honor company. And so I think the more and more there are these professional um, successes and female, you know, self-made women, I think we'll get more of them. The one thing I do, even though like, I really don't want to encourage this visual on YouTube, but look at this. This is, I wish I, I'm going to send you this because maybe I'll post it. But so we go into a boardroom and we ask about diversity, equity, and inclusion. What is, what does your management team look like through the ranks? Right. And we help companies write their sustainability reports. We help them um, communicate their sustainability efforts and link it to profitability and return. And only one of our companies so far has disclosed the complexion and gender of the company, the entire company of 26,000 employees throughout the ranks, right? This McKinsey and Stanford did this study. So I don't know if you could see this, but like this is where like the starting ranks within a corporation, how yeah. it lays out. And I could read it to you. It's like 36% white men, 16% men of color, 31% uh, white women and 17% women of color. Right. And then you go to the C-suite and somehow yeah. all of a sudden it's 70% white men, 9% yeah. men of color, 18% yeah. women and 4% women of color. And so what happens between those, you know, what happens between those levels, I think is where a lot of executives and board members should be focusing their time and thinking about how can I attract and retain and develop more women and men and women of color because what we know is diversity drives better outcomes. So that's a long, yeah. really, really long-winded answer to your original question. No, you're totally speaking the language in the whole, you know, the Justice Department and why I started the podcast. And, you know, and, and I think ultimately people have tried to be like, oh, I'm going to train them, et cetera. But we just need white men to step aside. <laughs> like and let us do the job like half of it um and it's like and that's not something you have to agree with because i know i'm very polarizing in these things we just need to start our own companies and and show them how it's done because your point is so right that pattern recognition of who i give money to i give it to the white man and he makes me a bunch of money like i've never you know i give it to my wife she spends all my money you know what i mean and so it's this pattern recognition but like we also can make money too. And there's a ton of studies from Harvard, et cetera. So it, it can't just be like a bunch of white men hiring into their patriarchal companies. They have to step aside. Like, you know, many of them could retire and it would be fine. It's so interesting. Yeah. So um, I have so many thoughts on that. I wouldn't agree necessarily that white men need to step aside. I think they need to I do think they need to invest in and elevate others because I just think it's unrealistic to expect um, to step aside. They have to be part of the solution and they have to see yeah. that actually having more cognitively diverse teams. And there's Scott E. Page wrote a book. He's a professor at University of Michigan. He wrote a book called The Difference and then The Diversity Bonus. And he basically proves empirically with data that more diverse teams, cognitively diverse yeah. teams, 
that have different experiences, different backgrounds, different education, but a lot of the time gender and ethnicity inform those experiences, they simply outperform on tests. They come to better conclusions, more successful conclusions, more accurate conclusions and solve problems better. And so I think what we what we need is a lot of, you know, white men dominate the senior levels of power and money. Yeah. And they need to realize that um, diversity is actually, if they embrace it, it could be a way to um, make everyone better off, but it's tricky. Um, and then I'll switch to, um, I remember I have friends who are in the venture world who started something called All Raise. Yeah. And it was when women were like female entrepreneurs, and it was very widely reported, they would be demoralized in pitches with mostly like male dominated venture firms or, you know, partners at venture firms. And um, a number of female partners at venture firms, um, they bound together and they did, they formed All Raise. And I was like, that's brilliant. Because guess what? Hello, calling all female entrepreneurs. I'm ready to back you. Like, yeah. here's like, right, what the opportunity, talent is evenly distributed. Opportunity is not, right? right? And so I am, you know, there's this huge amount of talent up here that's going to be the next billionaire, like female founder. And why, like, don't pitch these male dominated venture firms that are just going to make you feel bad about yourself and be demoralizing and inappropriate and harass you. Like come to these all, all female, like um, this always group or um, female angel investors. And I, so I think there's a huge opportunity to back these incredible female talented, uh, incredible female entrepreneurs. Um, and let's retain the economics to ourselves. Cause like they're, you know, yeah. they're just as likely to be talented and excel as men would. So yeah. So I know. So it's a, it's more than just like, you know, I probably said it too bluntly, like just put you aside, but it's also like, let other let go a little, let, let, let go. go. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's let go. Let's <laughs> listen. Let's include, and then go, you know what? Maybe my time has come maybe a little bit earlier, you know, to step aside and leave room for somebody other than somebody who looks exactly like you. And then yes, you know, that's the, a really hard thing to do. Well, of course, of course, yeah. yeah, of course. But that's why it's also building your own matriarchal system, right? Building it all. So it worked for you like you have done. I mean, you would you say you're one of two uh, female activists, and activists investors? investors? Yeah, that's insane. One. one of two. Okay. So we need a lot more in the public market side, but yes, in, in the, the public in market the public- side, but like, that's crazy. That is crazy. And you're doing like the work that needs to be done from the very, very, you know, top. And I'm sure it's not easy. I'm sure like every deal that you do or investment you make takes a very long period of time and yep. the changes. I mean, you're probably talking years and years, right. In order Correct. to. Yeah. We're making systemic change, right? So I want, yeah. I'm working with an auto company, um, one of the largest auto dealers in the US. And I thought the angle, and so we have this whole capital allocation idea where there's this huge roll up and there's, it's a consolidating industry. So it has like many, many years of runway for accretive M&A and, and growth, right? And share price appreciation. And then I went in thinking, oh, this is going to be an environmental play. They have like all these parts which can be recycled. They, you know, there's some toxic chemicals that we have to check like that, you know, make sure that they are uh, recycling any chemicals, having a clean, safe work environment, particularly in their parts and services where they're servicing the vehicle and doing brake pad changes and oil changes. And I quickly flipped you know, our approach, because what I realized is in the parts and services business, which is like when you go in and bring your car in for renovation or repair or maintenance, um, 
they had there's this huge secular tailwind meaning cars today are more silicon than steel right you can't if you have a fender bender today like five years ago you call geico they say okay go to this mom and pop collision center at the side of the road they'll fit you with an aftermarket lkq fender it's cost you 500 bucks and you're on your way in a couple hours today you can't do that because there's cameras and sensors and lidar and technology that's embedded throughout the body of the vehicle that you actually have to go to the auto dealer which is the company that we own because you have to be retrofitted for the technology but there's a huge problem there's secular tailwinds of demand to that auto dealer parts and services business but they're only utilizing their part their bays where they hoist up the cars and do all the work they're utilizing it 50 percent why because there's a huge labor shortage mechanics are retiring so much faster than they can attract new talent to the space so we got curious we're like oh why don't you pay your mechanics more like you'll retain them you know retain more and you'll hire more fine thanks you know lauren brilliant idea like yeah that. and so we peel back the onion and um we got curious we went to the bureau of labor statistics and what we realized is that they were um less than they, they were overlooking uh candidate pool entirely and that's women women represent less than two percent of auto mechanics but they dominate the industry as customers spending over 200 billion dollars annually and they generally mistrust their like their mechanics yes and so what can we do right there and then i went looking i'm like oh this is like a no-brainer so i went looking and we saw because you know when you look at healthcare or the veterinary space or legal fields or um, even construction which now is 10 percent female when women participate in the labor force at a greater rate productivity improves output improves revenue growth improves and so we connected them with a number of women-owned and operated um, parts and services collision centers. We had them, they're the first publicly listed auto dealer to offer paid maternity leave. They're going to a two-shift, you know, during the day, which allows for childcare and elder care, two things which disproportionately fall on the shoulder of women. Right. And they've more than doubled their female mechanics, but that's like going from two to four percent. We need them like to make this systemic change. This is good for business because it's going to sell accelerate growth in their most profitable segment. And it's good for it's good for the employee base because it's going to attract and retain more women who can make a ton of money. Mechanics can make over $100,000 a year yeah. in careers where they're naturally suited. Plus, is more of the diagnostic you know, management of, of cars happen on like, you know, for instance, phones and, and, like iPad. and iPads, you'll yeah. be able to diagnose what the problems are like that, that those skill sets naturally lend themselves to women. So anyway, that's, that's, that's an that example of something fascinating. that we, I just had to take my car. So I, I impulse bought a car on Carvana in the height of COVID, like literally May, 2020, because I'd gotten rid of mine because I was being environmental in New York city. And then I was like, Oh my God, I have nothing. What happened? What shit goes down? I got to go. And I hated buying it. I've hated owning it because whenever I've had to take to the shop. Now I actually grew up around cars and I actually know more about cars than most women do. Love and it. I'm not scared about cars and whatever, and, and understand uh -huh. what most parts are, but like I go in and they're like, Oh, you know, you need new brake pants. And I'll be like acting like, you know, and I'm Googling, I'm like, really? Cause it's, um, are they still the original one? Uh, you know, one from the, cause it's you know, like less than 50,000. Well, you wrote or yeah. Oh, really? I thought that it was a 70,000 and I'm Googling yeah. it right now because yeah, I yeah. don't, because it, we all know that we get, we can get screwed and not knowing what it is. Turns Did out. Did you they, like the Carvana experience? Oh my God. It was amazing. Actually. Ah, they're good. They're very good at used cars, but they're competitors. We have, we have something called click lane for all your listeners out there. If Carvana click doesn't what you want check out click lane that's that's well i'm going to check it out because i'm going to i'm going to sell this car um um soon but i just have to be able to get a new one yeah they'll buy it from you i i don't want to own it i want to lease it because i want somebody else to take care of it <laughs> yes that's why i lease everything
<laughs> so um, these are all fascinating statistics. I love all of this. And so, but I think what has become extremely clear is that we need more women to be like you and help you. And like, so are women, you know, you go to these business schools, are, are they interviewing to do a job like yours? I mean, how are you attracting them? So a lot of the business schools have um, tracks in finance and investing and securities analysis. And so I go back, I speak to um, a number of classes, I teach some classes and I recruit, you know, we have a small team, but I've recruited. And I think so much of this is a confidence game. And I see a big difference between a lot of the men that I interview who have so much, it's almost overconfidence, but it's really just the manner in which they assert certain acronyms like, oh, the EBITDA or the ROIC, the ROIIC, or, you know, and women, you know, they tend to want to be almost perfectionists. Mm-hmm. Um, they won't assert something unless they, um, unless they can do it to perfection. Yeah. And my view is, you know, the delivery and the confidence in it is just, uh, is so important. And I think that, you know, sometimes it obfuscates from actually the substance. So I try to get through, like we do a number of things. We interview people, we have like conversations with them, but then when we are ready to, um, when we go through our sort of analyst interview process, we have the second phase after the behavioral interview, where we talk stocks or talk companies that we're interested in. We have them do a modeling test where we give them, um, you know, the three different financial statements, the balance sheet, the income statement and the cash flow statement. We give them some transcripts, some, you know, 10K filings, and we have them sit down for five hours and we say, build a quick model, give me some scenarios, tell me what information you'd like to ask, or what you think, and like, what do you think about this? And then when we look at those models, we blind ourselves to the names. Mm-hmm. And so it's very interesting. So a couple of things happened. Of the, you know, we interviewed just the natural numbers. There were five male candidates who applied for every one female. It might have been six to one, actually. Yeah. Um, and then a lot of women took themselves out of that round when they found out it was going to be a five-hour modeling test where they had to do like a three-statement model and like put it together. Uh, and they didn't know that we were blinding ourselves to it, but they were nervous about it or intimidated by it. And so, you know, that was something we had to really think through. But what we do is we blind ourselves to it. So we're not judging the, you know, we're, we're taking out our like instinct about that person that we met. And we're just looking at the quality of the actual of the actual work. But um, I digress a little bit. I, I have a funny story because I think so if women simply came to the table and um and even if you speak confidently about, you know, honestly, I don't know. And I'd have to find that out. But here's what I do know. Um, I think that would get them so much further because yeah. I like the best answer as an investor. The best answer is I don't know. You know, if you yeah. don't know it, that's a really good answer. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but this is I have a funny story. Um, I had a friend who ran who was the CIO of JP, uh, a large bank's asset management. I just gave it away. But um, she was speaking at um, on a panel and she's like, you know, I had about 100 direct reports and there were like, you know, 40 women or you know, 35 women and 60 or 65 men. And I was just like trying to make a point. And she said, I asked the audience who's who feels confident that they understand like the cap and model or something, or who feels like they understand like the endowment approach to asset uh, allocation. And then she's like, who feels like they understand breastfeeding, breastfeeding. And of the women of the 35 women in the room, you know, probably like 30% of the hands go up, maybe 40% of the hands go up. And of the men in the room of the 65 men, at least 65% of their hands go up. 
<laughs> well, my, you know, and then like most women in the room are mothers. They had breastfed, but did they think they were an expert? Not really. And the men's whose hands were up, they were like, I watched my wife breastfeed. I got this. And so I think like I've seen that a lot, this sort of theme of men will volunteer and take the risk and be like, I can do this. And then knowing that um, they have no experience with it, figuring it out on the job. And women can do that too. And I think they could probably do that better if I had to guess, because they're so afraid of not being perfect at it. They just have to go out and, and right. take the risk. Yeah. Newsflash, men, if you're actually listening, none of you understand breastfeeding. Okay. Zero. I don't care if you watch somebody. I don't care if you're a doctor. I don't care if you're an OGYN. You do not understand it until you do it. Okay. Exactly. (laughs) Oh my God. No, it's so true. I mean, there's all these stats, like women have to be 130% prepared, men like 70, like nailed it. You know, and I see like I have boy-girl twins. I see it in them. Like we were at a soccer game, my son lost, and and my friends are like, How do you think he did it? So I was amazing. And then my daughter, like, they won, but she didn't make a goal. So she was like, We were okay. And I was just like, Okay. So I think that like we just embrace this and know it, but then get over this and go, like, you know what? It's okay to say I don't know. I mean, this is why I started this podcast because I literally like there's all these terms of vernacular that you're served as you're growing up as a boy and you graduate with a college roommate dad network. And it's like that's what we're building, college roommate mom network. I love that. Sign me up. I'm in the network. Um, I couldn't agree with it more. Um, And I remember, so I've been investing for so long and none of my friends were in investing. They were in like, you know, my closest friends were in like some were worked at publishing and magazines. Others worked at fashion brands. Others worked at like, um, you know, Mac or the, you know, in the beauty industry. And I remember when we were single and young and growing, uh, growing up, we were like, yeah. you know, in our 20s, I said, I want to do a women's dinner because I think all of you have like, they were giving money to like stockbroker friends who we grew up with who were not smart investors. Yeah. And I was like, you can invest your own money. Guess what? You have this unique insight. You know which brands. My friend who worked for, for um, Estee Lauder said, you know, you have, you go and you research, you do all this product work. Like, you know, which brands are going to sell, which brands are not going to sell. Like you should invest in companies where, you know, the brands are ascendant or even like my friends in fashion. Oh my God, this company's discounting so much. Like use the knowledge that you have in the fields of your areas of expertise and empower yourself um, to invest. Right. And for most of my friends, I say, just invest, invest in an index fund, just, you know, just plain and simple um, and you'll do fine. But if you have a unique insight, if you're working, you know, in like a data science space or something, you have unique insight to a company that's public that, you know, you think it's going to, um, is starting to really grow or where, you know, you have insight around, um, you know, how they're hiring, if they're hiring really rapidly, it usually is an indication that they're winning business. Put your, you know, leverage the insight that you have and monetize that insight. And so, but I, but so many of my friends were like, ah, the stock market, I don't know, it's too intimidating and scary. It's like, no, you just open an Ameritrade account or open a public account. Um, anyway, I hope, I think we can empower women, you know, women are like half of the workforce today. They have certain areas of expertise. They just have to be cognizant of it and have the confidence to monitor. Yeah. And it's like, and be okay with like what, you know, you know, my kids yeah. have that green light account, like, you know, and they, and they um, invest yeah. in, and I was like, well, what do you use? And they're like Roblox. And I was like, they both have made, you know, I mean, they put $10 in, but they both made like 50% yes. returns, you know, yes. because That's they play it. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, I love, um, I love, the, I think the green light card is great. We have it for our kids. They do their chores, they earn money. And then yeah. they have to think about what can you do with money? Well, you can spend it, you can yeah. save it, you can invest it, or you could donate it. Yeah. Right. Like, think about it. How do we want to do that? Like what, like, where do you think is the right place to put your money? But guess what? If you spend it all, like you can't, 
can invest, you're not going to make more money. You can like spend yeah. it today and get the lollipop, or you can invest it and have three lollipops in a month or, you know, whatever, you know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, it's so true. And I think that that education equally from the very beginning, you know, for girls and boys and, you know, letting women like, you know, not be perfect all the time and making yeah. them comfortable about that, I think is one of the biggest things, because as you said, if you can see it, you can be it. And, yeah. you know, it's great that people um, can see you, women can see you doing this. So I so appreciate you being on this podcast. And I know that you actually have to go and do some real shit right now. So I'm going to, um, I'm going to close up, but I do have one more question, which I always ask everybody on here. And that is what is the worst advice you've ever received? First of all, if you can see it, you can be it. I'm totally stealing that from you. I didn't say that. You said that. That's great. The worst advice I ever got was when I was trying to start my business. All the men who had to like help me and like um like at a lot of these investment banks, they, you know, they basically you meet them and they tell you, oh yeah, we think you can raise this much money and you know, we think you'll do this and this is possible, this is not possible. I went to see about two or three banks and two out of the three, one which I use all the men were like don't expect to raise more than 50. I'm at 2 billion now. Don't expect to raise more than 50 million. It's going to be a slug. Try to discourage me. And I'm like, and here, and you know, Stacey Abrams actually has this, um, has a saying, like when you are so underestimated your whole life, you are simply conditioned to outperform. Yeah. True. So I, there have been, there were so many naysayers and so many people were like, he, he, let me set your expectations. And I'm like, you don't get to set my expectations. Mm -hmm. I know what I'm capable of. And, you know, so I just, you'll get, I think you'll get a bite, you'll get bad advice, you'll get good advice. But the bad advice was from those uh, senior individuals at those firms that were estimating. Like, You're not going to do it. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Underestimate me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. Like you should be so it. used to it. Like, go ahead. Yeah, you should probably go find some other place to work for. And I'm like, yeah, no. Yeah. I so. love it. Thank you so much. This is, I definitely learned a lot. Thank um, you for the opportunity. I'm so excited to be part of the crew. Thank you. So look, if people want to, you know, know more about you, want to apply to work there, want to be you, want to and be an LP, like how do they find you? Go to impactivecapital.com. You can learn more about how we invest, what we aspire to, what our mission is, um, and how to apply. Amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. This has been awesome. Let us know what else you want to hear. Um, and until then, I'm Jennifer Justice. <laughs>